0: We are going to continue to critique Nadia Boltzweber's book, Shameless, and we're going to bring in a real expert on the subject this week. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms.
1: We evangelicals are not the ones who say sex is everything. We are not the ones who say that a life without sex is no life. At all. The assumption behind the the, the kind of challenge that celibacy is in itself harmful means that sex has become an idol. If life without sex is not conceivable for you, it is very clear what is really God in your life.
0: Okay, so we are going to go back to looking at Nadia Boltzweber's book Shameless. We are going to bring in a real authority on this issue. His name is Sam Alberry and you're going to see what he has to say on on these matters how scripture comes into this last week we kind of explored the philosophical sides of this this week we're going to explore the theological and biblical sides of it and we don't have a lot of time because there's a lot to pack into this episode so let me get right to it first of all welcome to all of you listening on knna the cross in nebraska also uh thank you to uh stephen kozar and the messed up church i'm like slipping my mind to, to mention Messed Up Church. I just kind of get in this routine in this mode and I forget to me- uh, mention Messed Up Church. You should definitely check out the Messed Up Church at messedupchurch.com. My podcasts are posted there for free. Um, and you can also check out the numerous resources they have there. We've had a couple of uh, uh, of the contributors on there uh, on, uh, on Messed Up Church on our, on our podcast to just kind of show you what that's all about. And We'll have uh, have Mr. Kozar here, hopefully, eventually, and uh, that sort of thing. So check out MessedUpChurch.com. Also, don't forget to go to Layman'sTermsRadio.com and give your donation to the Kibos Hopewell uh, project. Um, we've got it set up where we'd like you to donate per podcast. So it's very simple. We have plenty of listeners. If all of our listeners gave $5 per podcast for a month's time, we would put a serious dent in digging this well. It's as simple as that. And that's where I'm where I'm really going to leave it today. Um, if you're listening to this right now and you haven't gone to laymanstermsradio.org and given at least five bucks, five bucks, folks, simple as that, five bucks to listen to this episode, please go do that right now. laymanstermsradio.org, send you the splash page, they'll send you to our PayPal and you can donate 5 10 or $15 per podcast, or you can give a one-time donation to our GoFundMe account for $50. Please donate to this well project. It's very, very important, and will have a huge impact on the lives of these children who are trying to learn the Christian faith, be educated, and work their way out of poverty. So please donate to that. Now, like I said, we've got a lot to pack in here, so I am not going to gild the lily whatsoever this week. We are going to get right to what we have to deal with so here we go
2: one weekend cindy arrived early so she could burn something in the fire she stood outside the lodge with a couple of close friends by her side their faces focused on the flames before them the stones for the lodge glowing red under the burning wood in a few minutes those stones would be carried into the lodge and pinches of sweet grass and cedar would be tossed on top the cleansing incense of purification releasing in the air before the doors closed but for now The stones rested under the wood of the fire pit, ready to receive that which needed to burn. Cindy reached into her bag and took out her Bible, the same Bible that had sat in her lap in that cabin as a teenage girl, the one she had pretended to read to avoid exorcism, the one in whose margins she had scribbled desperate notes like a book of spells by which she could transfigure herself. Slowly, without words, she tore out eight very specific pages from her Bible, namely, those that mentioned homosexuality, and burned them one by one. As she stood there watching the inferno, she felt as if the people of her childhood church, the youth workers and pastors and other adults, rose from the grave of her psyche and stood in judgment of her around that fire. She saw them, but she didn't care. She was allowing herself to be free. But she wasn't quite done. Cindy then tore out the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John— The story of Jesus had never hurt her. Jesus had never asked her to split. So with her right hand, she clutched the pages of the Gospels over her heart, and with her left, she tossed in the rest to burn. There are those who will say that it is dangerous to think we can decide for ourselves what is sacred in the Bible and what is not. I reject this idea, and here's why. The Gospels are the canon within the canon, The Bible, as Martin Luther said, is the cradle that holds Christ. The point of gravity is the story of Jesus, the gospel. The closer a text of the Bible is to that story or to the heart of that story's message, the more authority it has and the farther away it is, the less its authority. It's a story of how the God who spoke through prophets and poets was the same God who showed up later in a human body and walked around like he didn't understand the rules. Jesus said God's world is like a father running into the road to meet his no good child as if the child's no goodness was no matter. Jesus' stories seemed like nonsense but then also seemed like absolute truth at the same time. He just kept saying that the things we think are so important rarely are. Things like holding grudges and making judgments and hoarding wealth and being first. Then one night this Jesus got all weird at dinner and said a loaf of bread was his body and a cup of wine was his blood and all of it is for forgiveness. All of it means our no goodness is no matter. Then he went and got himself killed in a totally preventable way. Three days later, he blew his friends' minds by showing back up and being all like, You guys have any snacks? I'm starving. Then he made a fire, grilled some fish, and invited his friends to join him. It is the same Jesus that stood by Cindy as she freed herself around a sweat lodge fire, clutching his story to her breast. The first Saturday in December, six months after hearing Cindy's story, I made my way up the wooden steps of a renovated barn outside of Denver. The great Advent gospel read aloud is a yearly tradition for House for All Sinners and Saints, a day when we gather around in a big circle of sofas and chairs, a hearty table of snacks nearby, knitting or other crafts in hand, and read the gospels out loud chapter by chapter, everyone taking a turn. Cindy sat at a table close by, still in the circle of furniture, drawing on a piece of watercolor paper. Travis, our resident Korean-American electrician and judo instructor, was reading from Mark 5 about the man from whom Jesus cast out an entire legion of demons, demons that had tormented the man, body and soul. Then people came out to see what had happened, Travis said, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I looked at Cindy. She too was sitting at the feet of Jesus, the one who had never hurt her, clothed and in her right mind she caught my eye smiled and lifted up the text from which she was following along no way i mouthed my eyes wide in cindy's hands were the gospels from her childhood bible matthew mark luke and john which she had clutched to her heart that evening twenty years ago at the lodge she'd fashioned a binding for the pages out of a braided cord of sweet grass and kept them all these years that night at the lodge There had been a full moon, the image of which Cindy had since rendered in watercolor over Matthew's opening story about Jesus' genealogy and infancy. Layers of soft gray cover the page, depicting the night sky with the words never again painted across the top. Then, down among the rows of text, an image of a full moon, a small white orb of light among the darkness surrounds a single word, Jesus.
0: One thing that is integral to postmodern deconstructionism and we're, we're going to talk a little more philosophy here and we're going to move into the theological, I promise. But one very important part of postmodern deconstructionism is who tells the better story. Um, it doesn't really matter what the author intended the story to tell. It, what really matters is... How can you take that story and make a better story out of it? And that's exactly what Weber is doing here. Now I don't know if she means to do this or not, but if she, if she is not meaning to do this, um, she has stumbled onto something that has been already been invented. And in fact, these were kind of the frequent assignments in these classes, you know I've taken. You know I, I took some at Claremont, I've taken some online. But really, these were the heart of the assignments to take stories that already existed, and that's why you'll you'll hear any good postmodernism say any postmodern any good postmodernist say that um, the literature that has come before us is is critical to how we articulate our stories today, because we can take those stories and we can improve upon them and we can make them our stories and we can tell a better story and that really at the end of the day is what's going to win out who has the best story and so Weber is trying to tell from Cindy's perspective a better story than even the Gospels and it's based on your lived experience but the problem is is that um, who really ultimately has the authority here is it Cindy? Is it Weber? Do I do I have to? You know, that's that. You know, who gets to judge who has the best story? And on top of that, you know, Cindy burned all of her Bible except for the Gospels, and and unfortunately, I guess for in Cindy's case, she's going to have to do a little more editing for her story than she wants to tell about her Jesus. Um, and quite honestly, in a in a class on postmodern deconstructionism, Cindy would have been given poor marks for discarding so much material because, really, she discarded all those you know the whole Bible except for the Gospels, uh, and really, in all honesty, to 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 run with this story of just Jesus as this compassionate you know live however you want type of figure um, is a little lacking. Rob Bell does a much better job of, of deconstructing the Bible. In fact, he's probably the best I've seen. We, we've reviewed him in the past. Go back and look at our podcasts on um, on Rob Bell's book about the Bible. You'll see what I'm talking about. Um, at the end of the day, uh, sadly, the Jesus that G- that Cindy is clinging to is a figment of her imagination. And what she really longs for... And, and we talked about Cindy in the last podcast. What she really longs for is the gospel. The forgiveness of sins. Um, the message the message that she has been forgiven and set free from her sins. And this is where a man named Sam Alberry is very important. Been, I, again, all the people I've listened to, um, Alberry is perhaps the strongest on this because he is a person who struggled with same-sex attraction and came to Christ and really never it, his story is very very unique in the sense that he he knew he wasn't attracted to women he was attracted to men and and he came to Christ and never really had an opportunity to pursue that attraction and he speaks about it, about it all over the world. Uh, Sam Albury is somebody who is same-sex attracted, but came to Christ and just decided never to pursue those attractions. And he he has amazingly compelling arguments about the very subject we're talking about here. So let me let uh, Sam take it away at this point.
1: So the first question, does Jesus even mention homosexuality? Does Jesus even mention Homosexuality, And obviously the implication behind the question is, if Jesus didn't, why are we talking about it? Why are we making a fuss about it? Um, on Twitter recently, I saw someone had tweeted, this is what Jesus said about homosexuality, and then there was just a blank space. So how do we respond? Well, I want to say two quick things. Jesus does not mention homosexuality. Secondly, in what Jesus does mention, he does address it. So two quick verses for us to to look at. If you've got a Bible with you, either turn to Matthew 15 or if you're the kind of person who uh, likes to do this instead, you can swipe on your gadget uh, to Matthew chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, I'll I'll read out the verses. Uh, Matthew chapter 15 And verse 19, Jesus is in a discussion with some of the religious Pharisees of his day. And he says to them in verse 19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus is talking about the the different kinds of things that defile us, that make us unclean before God. And he includes in that list the phrase that we've translated sexual immorality, uh, which is the translation of the Greek word porneia. And if the word porneia sounds a bit familiar, it's where we get the word pornography from. And in the time of Jesus, uh, the word porneia was a kind of catch-all term for any sexual behavior outside of marriage. That would include adultery, it would include premarital sex, Uh, It would include prostitution, and it would include homosexual sex. Jesus says these kinds of sexual behavior defile us. They are not the only things that defile us, but they are some of the things that defile us. And it's important for us to see that because it shows that whilst Jesus doesn't name homosexuality, in teaching like this, he does include it. With all sexual activity outside of marriage, Jesus prohibits it. So Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality, but he does include it. Now let me just give you uh, an illustration of this. Just imagine, I was so grateful that you've come along this afternoon. Actually, you don't imagine that. I am very grateful that you've come along this afternoon. But just imagine, I was so grateful this afternoon that I decided to say to you, as a thank you for coming... I want to give each of you $50 on your way out. I'm not going to do that, obviously. I'm I'm English. We don't do things like that. (laughs) But just imagine that offer was, was hanging in the air. Now, you would be eligible for that money. But have I named you? I've not named you. But it's very clear from what I said that I included you. Jesus has not named homosexuality in this verse, but it's very clear from what He teaches that it's
0: included. Right. So then, the inevitable question comes. You know, Albury asserts this idea that you know proper sex is found in the context of one man, one woman. You know, where do we really get this from the Bible? Where does, where does Jesus teach about this? And these sorts of things. But you know, there's not much I can add to that. To the assertion that Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality. And Essentially, what Alberry is pointing out here is, yes he does. He mentions homosexuality. And speaks directly against it. Now, let's move on to another clip from Alberry. Which I'm going to explain um, in a bit of extent here but let's listen to it first.
1: Uh, Second quick passage for us to turn to is Matthew chapter 19 and verses three to six. Some of these passages may be very familiar to some of us on these issues. Again, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they raise a question about divorce. So Matthew 19 verse three, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I gather there were rabbis at the time of Jesus pretty much teaching just that. Uh, For any kind of triviality, you could divorce your wife. I think one even taught that if she burnt your your meal, those were grounds for divorce. So they want to catch Jesus and see where he lands on this issue. And Jesus responds um, in a typically uh, insightful way. He says in verse 4, have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now Jesus is doing a number of things. Though. The first thing he's doing is he's, he's, poking, he's poking a little bit of fun at them. These are Pharisees who were so proud at the extent to which they were steeped in the scriptures. And Jesus begins his answer by saying, haven't you read and quotes Genesis 1. You know guys, did you, did you get as far as, I don't know, Genesis 1 in your <laughs> Bible reading? It's a great way to put a Pharisee down. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the Old Testament. Anyway, the first chapter might be relevant to you. Now Jesus says a couple of things. Um, in verse four, Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting from two different verses. There one from Genesis 1, one from the end of Genesis 2. And he puts them together. From the beginning, God created them male and female for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, our being created as men and women is connected to the fact that we have this thing called marriage. Because there is such a thing as gender, we have this phenomenon of marriage. Jesus tethers marriage to the sexual difference between men and women. Marriage is predicated on gender. Now friends, that is hugely significant. Because there are all sorts of ways that, that two people in a couple can be different and kind of fit well together. One might be left brain, the other might be right brain. One might be an extrovert, the other might be an introvert. But there is no deeper complementarity in the Bible than that between a man and a man. And a woman and it is this kind of union and actually only this kind of union that the Bible describes as one flesh So Jesus shows us that marriage is predicated on gender He shows us something else as well just a few verses later as Jesus Expands on what it means for the two to become one the disciples get cold feet and in verse 10 the disciples say, if, this is, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. You know, you can imagine the disciples freaking out a little bit here, going, you know, goodness me, if this is what it's like, then I might just give the whole marriage thing a bit of a miss. That sounds a bit too committed. Well, look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the very moment the disciples start questioning whether to marry, Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. He starts talking about the celibate. So the disciples say maybe it's better not to marry. Jesus doesn't say, "Yeah, maybe cohabit for a while, try before you buy." No, Jesus immediately talks about celibacy. The only godly alternative to heterosexual marriage is singleness. So Francis, I understand that the teaching of Jesus tells me that any kind of same-sex activity is not an option as a follower of Jesus
0: so this is why I'd like to debate Sam Harris because I would say Sam you're all about progress and let's look at the Bible and see how the Bible progresses us through history in three areas war slavery and sexuality And I I really want to stay on this point for a while because I think it's important to show that the Bible not only progresses us through history, but is a referent back to um, the way things should be. It's an ideal. The Bible calls us to an ideal. Okay, so let's talk about war. Um, In the ancient Near East, standards for war were fairly brutal. And the Bible vastly improves on them. For instance, God forbids the siege. It doesn't do this this openly, uh, but this this whole notion of destroying them utterly and just and these sorts of things um, is interesting because the common practice in the ancient Near East, all the way up until it, you know. Uh, after the times of Christ was the siege and it was and if you if you're not familiar with the siege, let me describe it to you a little bit. Um, from an, an historian, a Jewish historian Josephus after the times of Christ God forbade this all the way a, th- a thousand years before the time of Josephus. but let me describe what a siege, Looks like a little bit. From the very words of Josephus, he was describing the siege of Jerusalem around the time of AD 70 by the Romans. And here's what Josephus said. He said, throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. And every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence. And close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. The ruffians, anti-Roman zealots, searched them in case they were concealing food somewhere in their clothes or just pretending to be near death. Gaping with hunger, like mad dogs, lawless gangs went staggering and reeling through the streets, battering upon the doors like drunkards, and so bewildered, that they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse, which even animals would, would reject, was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes and leather stripped off their shields. Tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles for full for for full four drachmas but why dwell on the commonplace rubbish which the starving were driven to feed upon giver that i had to recount in an act unparalleled in either the history of the greeks or the barbarians and as a horrible to relate it as incredible to hear For my part, I should gladly have omitted this tragedy, lest I should be suspected of monstrous fabrication. But there were many witnesses of this among my contemporaries. And besides, I should do poor service to my country if I were to suppress the agonies she went through. And listen to this. Among the residents of the region beyond Jordan was a woman called Mary, daughter of Eleazar, of the village of Bethsuzba, the name meaning house of Hyssop. She was well off and of good family, and had fled to Jerusalem with her relatives, where she became involved with the siege. Most of the property she had packed up and brought with her from, from Persia had been plundered by the tyrants, Simon and John, leaders of the Jewish war effort. And the rest of her treasure, together with such foods as she had been able to procure, was being carried by their henchmen in their daily raids. In her bitter resentment, the poor woman cursed and abused these extortioners, and this incensed them against her. However, no one put her to death, either from exasperation or pity. She grew weary of trying to find food for her kinsfolk. In any case, It was by now impossible to get any, wherever you tried. Famine gnawed at her vitals, and the fire of rage was ever fiercer than famine. She was driven by fury and want. She committed a crime against nature. Seizing her child, an infant at the breast, she cried, My poor baby! Why should I keep you alive in this world of war and famine? Even if we live till the Romans come, they will make slaves of us. And anyway, hunger will get us before slavery. And the rebels are crueler than both. Come, be food for me. And an avenging fury to the rebels. And a tale of cold horror to the world to complete The monstrous agony of the Jews. With these words, she killed her son, roasted the body, swallowed half of it, and stored the rest in a safe place. So in a siege, an army surrounded the city and cut off the supplies, starving the inhabitants. And this is what this woman As well as the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were suffering in AD 70. This is a common practice of ancient warfare. And so we wonder sometimes why God commanded the total obliteration of an enemy. Not taking the people as chattel slaves, which we'll talk about in a second. But compared to all ancient practices of warfare, the war... Prescribed by God for the survival of the Jewish people in the Old Testament was was mild. Even the battle language they use, where, where you know, we completely wiped them out. We killed the women and children. These types of hyperbole used were are mild in comparison. And again, I've I've reviewed the book. Um, Is God a moral monster? And I would I would encourage you to go read that book as well, which will describe what um, warfare prescribed for the Jewish nation, how mild that was in comparison. It was progress. And this sort of thing was still going on um, in the first century AD. Slavery, as well is not what people think slavery is described as in the Bible. And we've had podcasts on this before. Chattel slavery was strictly forbidden. Slavery was more akin in the Bible to modern-day employment. Exodus 21 spells this out. Slavery was a way out of permanent debt or poverty. And six years was the term of the service. Once you served your six terms you you were freed from slavery and not only freed from slavery you were given enough to start your own business slaves could marry even masters could betroth children to their slaves uh, slave masters who abused their slaves or killed them were held to the same account as everybody else there's no there's no hint of any kind of slavery that we're aware of from you know 19th century chattel slavery in America or slavery anywhere else in the rest of the world that that, that that is described here just doesn't work that way in the Bible. And these sorts of things are unheard of in biblical times and unheard of really in our time. So anyone who would take the Bible to defend slavery in America doesn't know their Bible. We've talked about this before. Now, let me hasten on to talk about sexuality. And to do that, let me uh, allow someone... Who is, who is writing a book and is, and is studying the Jewish scriptures and is fact a Jew himself talk about sexuality um, in uh, the, the Old Testament. Now take the commandment with regard
3: to the one that's popular today, with regard to homosexuality, for example. How do we know that that wasn't just a progressive attempt to move away from something worse, but the really progressive thing would be to say that what it's really talking about is we're moving toward monogamy for male couples or female couples, which is the way that some people in in sort of liberal congregations try to reinterpret that phrase. In other words, where does reason stop? And we say, okay, we've gone far enough. And where do we say, okay, well, this commandment was written for the time, and it was determined to drag people out of a certain level of primitivism, and now we can drag them even further out of that level of primitivism. I am, that's in the uh, third book of the Bible, Leviticus, I devote 20,000 words to that verse. And this is the gist of it. The gist is this. I thought before I did my research, and I'm sure everyone thinks this, that the Bible simply codified what every other society believed, and that is homosexuality is bad, end of issue. It turns out, and I learned this from, from homosexual scholars and pro-homosexual, pro-gay scholars. I, this is not from me. Every society in the world, except for biblical society, said that, uh, homosexuality was good. This was a total revelation. Ancient China, ancient Incas, ancient Egyptians, ancient Greeks, you, anywhere on earth, I read a book by a Harvard professor and, you know, this is not my favorite reading. I'm, and it's not only because it's, it's very, it's very involved, obviously, on ancient Chinese homosexuality. So this was the rule like in ancient Greece. Women were for babies. Boys were for fun. The Torah did, said it the opposite. The Torah said wives are for fun. The Torah in that law eroticized marriage. It was a staggering revolution in human history.
0: Right. So there, again, we see from Prager and his vast research that this whole idea that that girls are for babies, boys are for fun type of idea that's trying to be that's really being resurfaced in in our modern day culture and and promulgated by the likes of Naughty Bolts Weber is actually a regression, not a progression. The, The huge irony with Weber is that first of all she's a Pharisee when it comes to divorce the Pharisees were of the opinion I can divorce whenever I want for whatever reason I want now granted that was a privilege of the men back then but she wants to she wants to give that privilege to men at this point That, but that's a Pharisaical attitude to say I, I want to be able to divorce whenever I want just write my certificate of divorce and I'm out of here hello no fault divorce second it's ironic that she acts like she and her entire congregation are these marginalized people. Friends this stuff she's talking about is mainstream. you remember uh, the, the trans woman the man that she was talking to in our last episode that you know said you know the the, the, the number of people who are trying to live according to quote God's plan, For marriage and sexuality are are tiny. Yeah. That's pretty much true. The overwhelming majority of people. Are trying to live outside of that. And trust me. We're not getting irrigated. Like Naughty Bolts Weber would uh, contend. We're the ones that are really the marginalized. That's what's incredibly ironic. Is she's trying to paint... Those who are living by These Aberrant sexual Lifestyles What we might call aberrant But throughout human history really are the norm Um She's trying to paint those who would say The only true And most fulfilling place For sexuality Is in the context of a a lifelong monogamous marriage I would remind you That the science backs this Science backs this Go listen to our other podcasts. I've had evolutionary biologists talk about how um, heterosexual, lifelong, monogamous relationships that bear children are the most fulfilling. Statistically speaking. But yes, they are the marginal. Those of us who pursue that lifestyle are all are the minority. We're, we're the marginalized. Not those who would live outside of it. The bottom line is here, and this is what I want to try to really get across as as kind of the thesis point of of this podcast is, whatever is popular in the culture and normal, the siege, chattel slavery, treating women as baby factories, etc., is opposed by the Bible. If you really want to be progressive, follow Holy Scripture, the Bible did it far better than any contemporary society. And when they didn't, God saw to it that the situation was rectified. That's what goes on there. You wonder why God seeks revenge and is like, why is God so angry with, you know, he's just killing people everywhere? It's because people are living outside of, of the way he created them to be. And therefore are doing harm and violence to people. And God will not stand for that. God intervened and said, no, I'm not going to allow this, even from the people I chose. When they begin to live as if what my commands say don't matter, and they're going to live just like the rest of the world, I'm going to visit punishment on them. I'm going to rectify this situation. God teaches in the Old Testament, don't make your enemies suffer needlessly. I mean, we've barely gotten to this today. And and, you know, the, the whole idea of war atrocities and that sort of thing. We, you know, we've barely scratched the surface on this, but but God was on this, you know, four millennia ago. Don't do chattel slavery. But instead employ somebody for a time to help them. I mean, we're almost there with this. It's interesting. <laughs> I, I, it would be great if the—I don't know—I I don't know how to say this—but the year of jubilee, you know, where you serve an employer for seven years, and at the end of the seven years, the employer is obligated to give you a—you know—enough. meat. mean, that would be great if I'm—I'm a, I'm a trucker and I'm coming up on seven years of of driving as a trucker. It would be amazing if my trucking employer was obligated to give me a truck and trailer said hey bud here's your truck and trailer here's all you need to get started on your own go to it wouldn't that be something that that might be an idea if you want if you want to kind of combine capitalism with socialism you know maybe maybe that sort of idea and maybe if i get the opportunity to start my own trucking company i might just do that i might just say hey you guys come you work for me you work hard seven years and in seven years i'll give you your own truck and trailer that'd be pretty cool huh but the Bible was there thousands of years ago before we even thought of this. Um, and finally, don't treat your wife or husband for that matter as a baby making factory. This is going on on both sides. Let's not forget that there are women who are seeking men to just get them pregnant so they can get on the dole. It's, that's, that's a harsh thing to say. I know, I know it's not a politically correct thing to say but, but but that's not what that's not what marriage relationships are for. As as Prager pointed out, marriage relationships are for enjoyment as well. All right? So, let's get to the money clip on this and then we've got to close it out.
1: Isn't the traditional Christian position on sex and marriage harmful? Is it not the cause of acute mental health problems, even suicide? Um, I'm finding now this is the most uh, frequently raised question I get asked. And again, it is certainly the most emotive. Um, Dan Savage uh, wrote these words, and I'm quoting from Justin Lee's book, Torn. Dan Savage writes, the dehumanizing bigotries that fall from the lips of faithful Christians give your straight children a license to verbally abuse, humiliate and condemn the gay children they encounter at school and they fill your gay children with suicidal despair. He then adds, and you have the nerve to ask me to be more careful with my words. It is put provocatively but it expresses how many people feel today. Our line on this issue inflicts great harm on people's mental health, it is claimed. It engenders deep self-loathing. It forces people who are not suited to it into a celibate lifestyle. Uh, The first thing, and again, this is why this is such a huge question, is it is a heartbreaking situation. There is no doubt there are folks out there, young people especially, who feel enormous amounts of self-loathing. The fact that there are young people struggling with different kinds of sexual identity, who find themselves in a situation where the only way forward that they can imagine is to take their own life, it has to break our hearts. And I suppose one of the first things we we need to say is that our conviction as Christians is there is never an excuse for abusive language or behavior. There have undoubtedly been those who have victimized and who have ridiculed those with same-sex attraction and have thought that by doing so they are somehow furthering the Christian cause. Such abuse is every bit as unchristian as the behaviour they claim to have the right to denounce. But the question still remains, is our position, even if graciously and carefully articulated, is our position responsible for harming the mental health of people around us? I've got a couple of things to say under this question. The first thing to say is the gospel involves enormous cost and enormous blessing for everyone. The gospel is costly for everyone. Uh, The gospel makes us see ourselves in a new and painful light because the teaching of Jesus shows us we're not just a little bit flawed here and there, needing a bit of fine tuning. The teaching of Jesus is that we are fundamentally sinful at heart. And that is a painful thing to learn. Jesus Jesus calls on us to give up everything for him. Uh, He says in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, Jesus calls us to give up our very self to him our sense of who we think we are. Now friends, my point in raising that is is not to say that therefore it doesn't matter if people feel deep self-loathing, it does matter. My point is that the gospel should be costly for every single person who turns to Christ. Um, When I've done talks on this issue I've, I've lost count of the number of people who've come up to me afterwards and said yeah, but the gospel's harder for you, isn't it? Because it goes right against who you really are. And the first thing I respond by saying is, actually, my same-sex attraction is not who I am. It's part of what I feel, but it's not who I am. But secondly, are you trying to tell me that the gospel is just kind of slotted in neatly into your life without any kind of reappraisal or cost or frustration at all, because if that's the case, it's not this gospel you've received. There is no one for whom the gospel is not hugely costly. And there is no one for whom that same gospel is not utterly worth it. Um, Let me take you to Mark chapter 10 and one of my favourite verses at the moment. I think we're allowed favorite verses. Mark 10, verse 29. I'll start at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake. And for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Peter raises this issue. He says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And we don't know the tone of Peter's voice. We don't know if he's asking this out of pride, saying, we've left everything. We're the the heroes. We're the guys here. Or whether he's asking out of despair, going, Jesus, we've left everything. Please tell me this is going to be worth it. But either way, Jesus' answer is the same. He recognizes that there are those who have to leave things behind to follow him. That is part of what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross. To turn to Jesus, we have to turn away from many things. Many things that are precious to us. Following Jesus involves leaving things behind and giving things up. But the promise here is that however much we have to leave behind, we are never left out of pocket. We never receive a bad deal. And notice Jesus isn't just saying, yes, you have to give a lot up in this life, but grit your teeth and hang in there because eventually there'll be heaven. No, Jesus says there is no one who won't receive a hundredfold now in this time and then in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying following him is worth it even in this lifetime and even with hardship. Whatever we leave behind, Jesus replaces in godly kind and far greater measure. And what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives us back. If the costs are great, the rewards are greater. And interestingly, that the main cost Jesus anticipates is relational. And the main blessing Jesus anticipates is relational. We may well have to leave some relationships behind in order to follow Jesus. But we will receive homes and family as part of his people. Jesus gives us family. It's wonderful, isn't it? You don't just come to Jesus and find it's just me and Jesus now hanging out for the rest of my life. Jesus puts us in families. And so he promises us brothers and sisters, mothers, Children, And even, as he anticipates, persecutions. That gives us, as God's people, a responsibility. We are to be family to those who leave behind much to follow Jesus. And so, my friends, if you are seeking to share the gospel with someone who will have to give up relationships to follow Jesus... You've got to be there for them if they come to believe that gospel. We evangelicals are not the ones who say sex is everything. We are not the ones who say that a life without sex is no life at all. And the idea that the assumption behind the the kind of challenge that celebrity is in itself harmful... means that sex has become an idol. If life without sex is not conceivable for you, it is very clear what is really God in your life. A friend of mine, Andrew Wilson, back in the UK, once uh, recently spoke on the issue of, why does God care who I sleep with? And part of his answer was to turn the question around and say, why do you care so much who you sleep with? Why is that where you draw the line and object to following God. Why is that your one non-negotiable? It strikes me that it is our culture that is making sex into an idol and therefore is saying to people, when your sex life doesn't work out, your life hasn't worked out. It is not that the evangelical church, but our society around us that is putting the stakes up that high. And my question is, which perspective is most likely to make someone feel that their life is not worth living? The perspective that says sex is everything, and if it's not fulfilling, then there's no point. Life without sex is no life at all. Or the Christian perspective that should be saying, sex is a wonderful gift from God, but it is but a gift and is no substitute for the giver. So friends, I don't deny that the church has been the cause of ungodly and unwarranted pain and abuse for people over the years and we should not be slow to confess that and to repent of it. But I want to challenge the culture around us to say I think it has blood on its hands as well in making sex the center.
0: All right. Now that says it all. And I want to refer you also to a section in Nadia Boltzweber's book, Broken, where she talks about where, or uh, it's shameless, uh, where she is finally beat down by all of her sexual exploits. And um, I'm going to play that now for those of you who are listening on YouTube. um, We don't have time for it here in the podcast today. But if you want to check it out, go to our YouTube channel in laymanstermsradio.com and check it out. But living outside of God's prescribed norms for sexuality, as Alberry aptly points out, is not going to lead to a good place. And Weber's brokenness demonstrates that. And again, I would encourage you to listen to the YouTube video. Of this you can hear um, this scene from Weber's book, or read Weber's book, and you, you will see, you know, really where all of this has kind of uh, ultimately led her, really in recent history. And it's not a good place. I really, uh, my heart broke for her because she she has really bought into this idea, and and it's not it's not delivering on its promises. It's not delivering on its promises. Holy Scripture is what delivers on those promises. That's the ideal, and hopefully for those of you who are struggling with this, I know we all do. We all struggle with this because our culture, our society, everything around us kind of, uh, pushes us in this way. And so, um, it's hard to resist. I'll grant you. It is hard to resist. It's it's, it's especially hard to resist, um, when this is not the kind of training you've been brought up in. I know that's true for me because, um, while my parents were really good about teaching me about sexual immorality, um, I just you know I, I was just on a different path with my friends and my culture and my teenage years. I was. I was I, I, you know I was ignoring their teaching. And then, you know, I became an evangelical and then I kind of went off into this libertine world and thought that that was the way to go. And it's just not, friends. It just doesn't deliver on its promises. Only holy scripture delivers on its promises. And so, at any rate, I want um, for those of you listening on YouTube, we're going to play this uh, this clip from from Weber's book. For those of you listening on the podcast, we're going to finish out the podcast today. Go listen to the to the end uh, on YouTube. Uh, but but let's go from here. At any rate. Thank you to all of you listening on Kane and the Cross. Thank you to Steve Kozar and the Messed Up Church for including us in uh, in that project. Don't forget to give to the Kenya Well Project. And um, I hope this was helpful to you. Tough stuff, difficult stuff, uh, but but necessary things for us to address in our day and time. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.
1: vacation. What you
3: saw, where you went, or how much it cost. Instead won't you tell me all the words that give me salvation. How he lived and how he died for me on the cross. Hey preacher man, give me the gospel. Give me the good
1: news of God's only son. Hey preacher man, Give me his body give me his